We're in a midweek discipleship study on simplicity in life with God with a theme passage of 2 Corinthians 11, verse 1 through 4. This evening, the message is what it means to study the works of the Lord. And we're going to consider Psalm 111 in its entirety with a focus on several verses. We have been focusing on the simplicity that is in Christ And I read a devotional just a few days ago from Oswald Chambers on January the 26th in My Utmost for His Highest. And I want to read an excerpt from that because I think it introduces and emphasizes this study very well. He wrote, how can we maintain the simplicity of Jesus so that we may understand him? By receiving his spirit, recognizing and relying on him and obeying him, As he brings us the truth of his word, life will become amazingly simple. Jesus asked us to consider that if God so clothes the grass of the field, how much more will he clothe you if your relationship is right with him? Every time we lose ground in our fellowship with God, it's because we have disrespectfully thought that we knew better than Jesus Christ. We have allowed the cares of this world to enter in while forgetting the much more of our Heavenly Father. And then he cites, look at the birds of the air from Matthew chapter 6, and consider the lilies of the field. And Jesus said that if we would obey the life of God within us, he would look after all these other things. Consecration is the act of continually separating myself from everything except that which God has appointed me to do. It is not a one-time experience, but an ongoing process. Then he asks this question in closing. Am I continually separating myself and looking to God every day of my life? We've been focusing on this issue of simplicity uh, in our life with God. Paul told the church at Corinth that he feared that their minds might be seduced from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. That's the emphasis that he gives in the theme passage, 2 Corinthians chapter 11. And the big idea that we have for this study is that simple devotion to God sets us free. We were in bondage to sin before we got saved. So our salvation is our redemption. It's our freedom from sin and the bondage of it. And then the freedom that we have in living out the Christian life in its simplicity is through the sanctifying process. That's in our growth in likeness of Jesus. Psalm 111 is an acrostic psalm that is arranged according to the Hebrew alphabet. The opening line of praise the Lord or hallelujah sets the tone. Then from there, each of the 22 lines of the psalm begin with a successive letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So I begin reading here in Psalm 111 and verse 1. There are only 10 verses, so we'll read the psalm in its entirety. Hallelujah. I will praise the Lord with all my heart in the assembly of the upright and in the congregation. The Lord's works are great, studied by all who delight in them. All that he does is splendid and majestic. His righteousness endures forever. He has caused his wondrous works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and compassionate. He has provided food for those who fear him. He remembers his covenant forever. 
He has shown his people the power of his works by giving them the inheritance of the nations. The works of his hands are truth and justice. All his instructions are trustworthy. They are established forever and ever, enacted in truth and in uprightness. He has sent redemption to his people. He has ordained his covenant forever. His name is holy and awe-inspiring. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and all who follow his instructions have good insight. His praise endures forever. The psalmist opens with the word hallelujah. Before he describes the Lord, he determines that he's going to praise him. And when we make that type of determination, that's going to set our minds and our hearts in the right direction. The word hallelujah is a transliteration of two Hebrew words, halal and Yahweh. Halal means to extol the greatness or excellence of a person, to extol the greatness of an event. It's sometimes also translated as praise that is directed specifically toward the covenant name of God. The word first appears during the exilic period as it relates to the history of Israel. In the Old Testament, it appears only in the Psalter, and it appears 24 times uh, in uh, the uh, Old Testament. I should say it appears mostly in the Psalter, and it appears 24 times uh, in the remainder of the Old Testament. And then in Revelation 19 in the New Testament. In almost every case that hallelujah is used, it's used as a call to worship. You think about the order of how we do worship. We used to more formally print in the bulletin, call to worship. But essentially, when we come together, either on a Wednesday evening or Sunday morning or otherwise, for congregational worship, and we stand together and we open with a song or we open with a prayer or something else, we are issuing a call to worship. And that's what the word hallelujah is, is it's a call to worship to bring the people and their attention to God. So to say hallelujah is to say that we extol the greatness of the covenant-keeping God. I think the key verse is found in verse 2. The works of the Lord are great, studied by all who have pleasure in them. To study the works of the Lord lead us to praise. Uh, there should be nothing held back. We, we cannot worship God with a divided heart. We have to worship him with a unified heart and looking to him for guidance in that. The psalm draws attention to the works of the Lord for his people. I think primarily what he's referring back to historically at this point was from the Exodus through the time of Joshua and his leadership in conquering the promised land. It was likely penned for worship among God's peoples, uh, people at the feast. And the psalmist is exhorting praise to God to set an example for himself to tell us of why we should praise and also to recommend a holy fear of God. I think the premise of this in terms of how we're looking at this psalm is that I will praise the Lord with my whole heart. If we're being called to worship, hallelujah, and we're going to see the works of the Lord as great and study them, then we're going to be led to a place where we praise the Lord with our whole heart. David, in an earlier psalm, used similar and specific language. Listen to what he says in Psalm 27 and verse 4. 
One thing have I asked of the Lord, and that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. He says to gaze, to dwell, to inquire. And the beauty of the Lord is the Lord himself in his glory. And we know that the human soul has been designed by God for worship. And that's why sometimes people can get so easily off track is because we have been designed to worship. But if we worship the wrong things and we're prone to idolatry, that's going to get us in all sorts of trouble. So we see the glory of God. We want to learn about the glory of God. We want to live for the glory of God. And we come to him with a singleness of heart. You remember when God asked Solomon what he desired? Solomon's answer was that he desired wisdom. And he wanted to use that wisdom to rule. David asked for the presence of God. David's pearl of great price was the presence of God. And he shows us something in this about the significance of life with God. And the beauty of the Lord speaks of his character where we find him through prayer and the word and worship and in the fellowship of God's people. There's a story that's reportedly true about a Chinese pastor who spent 23 years in prison. His story and his circumstance and his strong faith would inspire millions of Chinese Christians who were aware of his situation. He was eventually released from jail and he was asked by a visiting pastor from the United States. He said, I will probably never be put in prison like you, so how can your faith have impact on mine? And the Chinese pastor replied, when you go back home, how many books do you have to read this month? How many letters do you have to write? How many people do you have to see? How many sermons do you have to preach? He said, here's what you need to do. You need to build yourself a cell. He said, because when I was put in that jail cell, I was devastated. I was an evangelist. I was an author. I was a preacher. I wanted to study the Bible and write sermons, but I had no Bible. I had no pulpit. I had no audience. I had no pen and paper. I could do nothing except get to know God. And he said, so for 20 years, that was the greatest relationship that I had. He said this, and I quote, I was pushed into a cell, but you will have to push yourself into one. Simplify your life so that you have time to know God. Revival can only come to those who make room for God. Now, if we're going to make room for God, we've got to be often in God's presence. We have to have a hunger about us to get to know him and to gaze upon his beauty because that's what we were made for. And we have to be careful that we're not allowing externals in our lives, even things that are good but are not the best things, to crowd out our relationship with God. Because if we do that, we're going to end up running on empty. We're not going to live life filled with the Spirit. and We're not going to experience the, the fulfillment of the purpose that God has for us. Now, there are several things that are foundational in this psalm. One is that God's righteousness endures forever. God is the standard of righteousness in his perfection. So when we say that God is righteous and his righteousness endures forever, we're saying that he is righteous in every attribute, attitude, behavior, and word 
that is associated with him. We also know that God is gracious and he's full of compassion. Grace is unmerited favor. Compassion is the mercy of God for his people. And God is faithful and just. He's the one who is reliable and steadfast and unwavering in all that he does. So when we begin to understand the justice of God, we understand that justice flows out of the righteous, holy character of God. And it goes hand in hand. And God's name is holy and it's awesome according to this psalm. When you study the works of the Lord, it will lead you to praise. And knowing God orders all of life and it reminds us of where our faith and our hope is to be placed. So let's look first at this truth. We are to praise the Lord for his works because they are honorable and glorious. We're to praise the Lord for his works because they are honorable and glorious. That's what verse 3 says. Now, your translation might also say splendid and majestic. That's the way the New American Standard translates it in a literal form. That the works of God are honorable and glorious are also translated as splendid and majestic. The root word for honor in Hebrew means heavy or weighty. When we see the word honor in the Old Testament and throughout the Old Testament, really, it speaks of the weightiness of whatever is being referred to. Abundance, glory, dignity, high position, all of these are a, a part of something that is honorable. Now, honor in our world seems to be in short supply, but the Bible has a lot to say about it. Think about some of the things that the Bible says about honor. We're to honor God. Remember, the scripture says in 1 Samuel 2 and verse 30, those who honor me, I will honor so we first honor God, and that's the focus here because his works are honorable and gracious. But just some insight into how honor is presented and discussed in the scripture helps us see a little bit better how this applies to God. We're to honor our parents. Of course, that's a commandment in the Ten Commandments. We're to honor our spouse if we're married. First Peter 3 and verse 7 says, Husbands, give honor to the wife. And Ephesians 5 and verse 33 says, Let the wife wife see that she respects her husband. We are to honor our children in the sense that we're not to provoke them to wrath and we're lifting them up or building them up rather than tearing them down and pulling them away. We're to honor those who are older. Leviticus 19 and verse 32 says you shall rise up before the gray-headed and honor the aged. You're to honor your boss. Not necessarily a popular idea, but it's a biblical one. And Colossians chapter 3 says that we're to do whatever we do as unto the Lord. We're to work as unto the Lord. So if you've been provided a job, even if it's not your dream job or what you hope to land in permanently or whatever it might be, you still are there and you are representing Jesus Christ. You're an example of him, whether it's a good situation or a bad one. That doesn't make any difference as far as how you're to live and what kind of testimony you're supposed to give. You're to honor your spiritual leaders. First Thessalonians 5 and verse 12 says, honor those who are your leaders in the Lord's work. We're also to honor secular authorities. Romans 13 speaks of the order that is placed in society uh, to keep that order and to protect people. And then generally, we're just to honor others. Romans 12 and verse 10 says, 
honor one another above yourselves. And then 1 Peter 2 and verse 17 says, show proper respect to everyone. When we bring these together, honor is presented in the Bible in the form of external splendor that is visibly expressed. So we're seeing the worthiness of someone or something, and we're ascribing worth to that. We're recognizing the weight that goes along with the honor. When we think of honoring God, it's true in one sense that God is an incomprehensible being. And if God is a transcendent, incomprehensible being, then that's going to make honoring him complicated. But because he's revealed himself to us and made his infinite greatness known to us and preeminently revealed himself to us through his son Jesus, then we have something to go on and we begin to understand how we can honor him. I think back to the book of Job after searching out the deep things of God and instructing Job. Zophar taught Job about the transcendence of God. And Job 11 and verse 7 through 9 says this, Can you fathom the mysteries of God? Can you probe the limits of the Almighty? They are higher than the heavens above. What can you do? They are deeper than the depths below. What can you know? And their measure is longer than the earth and wider than the sea. When you turn your thoughts toward God and who he is as the almighty God, it is overwhelming. But God has revealed himself to us. He draws near to us and he promises he'll draw near to us when we draw near to him. Listen to this quote from Charles Haddon Spurgeon. He said, nothing will so enlarge the intellect, nothing so magnify the whole soul of man as a devout, earnest, continued investigation of the great subject of the deity. The most excellent study for expanding the soul is the science of Christ and him crucified and the knowledge of the Godhead in the glorious Trinity. To praise God for his honorable and glorious works means to recognize that there's no other authority that's higher than him. In all of the heavens or all of the earth, he is the supreme one. And if we put ourselves in opposition to him, there's going to be consequences. You remember King Nebuchadnezzar, also an example from the Old Testament. He learned the hard way how to honor God. He lifted himself up for worship. And Daniel 4 and verse 34 says at the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, speaking from a first-person perspective, raised my eyes toward heaven and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. We ascribe honor to the works of God. So when we see God's works as honorable, it helps us avoid the sin of honoring ourselves. Too many people in our day that want to honor themselves, they want to put themselves on display. They want a platform. They want uh, clicks. They want uh, attention. And that's the opposite of the character of the Christian, to promote ourselves over anything else when we should be promoting God and his glory. We're instructed in Philippians chapter four to meditate on whatever is honorable. You can renew your mind by governing your thoughts. So if we're focusing on whatever is honorable, that's going to provide a grid for us to evaluate our thinking. And the other problem is not only that we have so many people who want to honor themselves, but 
we also in our world tend to honor the dishonorable. There's very little shame anymore about anything. And sometimes the more foolish it is, something that someone has done, the more attention they get. And that's how they get famous. And again, that's contrary to what it means to live in humility before the Lord. And the biblical measure of what is honorable is that which is honorable to God. The works of the Lord are honorable and glorious because they reveal to us who he is. So I want you to think about as you look around the world and you see how God's creation is organized. You see how pleasant and beautiful so many things are that the Lord has made. And you see his handiwork. And that's going to bring you to a place to recognize that his works are honorable and glorious. There's a story that's been around as long as this particular circumstance has been around. I've shared it in some form or the other in the past, but I'm going to share it again here. The Sistine Chapel that you're familiar with, at least in name, if you've not had opportunity to be there, is one of the true jewels of the world. And after spending four years painting it, Michelangelo finished his masterpiece in 1512. The chapel went into daily use. Now, in those days, the only source of light that they had was from candles. As the candles burned year in and year out, the soot began to rise to the ceiling and obscured the paintings. After over 400 years of soot, grime, and dust collecting on the ceiling, the original art had to be restored. So they sent in a highly skilled team of restorative artists who worked on the Sistine Chapel from 1984 to 1999 until the monochrome colors were restored to their original beauty. Now, prior to the restoration process, there were some who thought that Michelangelo was a genius at composition. After all, how did he think to have Adam's hand stretching out, yearning to find the finger of God, which was already reaching out to him? But there were also some who criticized him, and they thought that his coloration was mediocre, more or less. They thought it was too dark, it was too monochromatic, and too blah. But when they finally restored those frescoes to their original state, everybody could see the brilliant colors that he had used. And the moral of this story is that when the maker's true brilliance and goodness are revealed, our assumptions are going to change because we're going to know more about him. And in a similar way, for many of us over the years, the dust of daily life, the grime of our sin and the soot that we collect because of things that none of us are probably proud of at times, obscure our vision of God's honor and glory. Those things can obscure how we see God. And God's character might seem like it's dim or the colors aren't all that brilliant or it, it, it's not all that magnificent. And we might even feel like we uh, no longer feel or deeply experience Christ as we should in our relationship with God. And we need that to be restored. The only way it can be restored is through time in prayer and the word and through the presence of other Christians who are gazing upon the honor and the glory of the Lord. And here's what I know. God is always at work around us. And God is always ready to work in us. But if we're allowing other things to crowd him out, he's not going to force it. 
He's going to convict us, discipline us if he has to, but his work is more prevalent than it may first appear if we're not spiritually minded. The works of God are honorable and glorious. And then the second truth is this. We're to praise the Lord for his works because his instructions are trustworthy. Notice what verse 7 says. All his instructions are trustworthy. It's also translated as all his commandments are sure. And then the word precepts is used in some translations saying all his precepts are trustworthy. An instruction, commandment, or precept is any instruction intended as a rule of action or conduct. It's especially true when it relates to a practical rule guiding behavior. When we think about what precepts are in the Bible, they're guiding truths which have the good of the person in mind. So the root behind the word precept or instructions means intervention by a superior for the subject uh, that, or for the good of the subject that is involved. So to follow God's precepts is to acknowledge God's guidance in your life and depend on him. I think about Isaiah 28 where the prophet begins to describe a a series of woes or, or messages warning the people of coming judgment because of their disobedience to God. And in one of these woes, the phrase precept upon precept repeatedly appears. Precept means a guiding rule, command, or principle. And here's what Isaiah 28 and verse 13 says. The word of the Lord will be to them precept upon precept, line upon line, and it's doubled up precept upon precept and line upon line. God's message of rest and deliverance would be rejected and the people would not hear. But the word of the Lord was to be presented to them precept upon precept, line upon line. And Isaiah calls for the leaders to stop defending their strategies and return to trusting in the Lord. Because what they needed to do was they needed to trust God and they needed to repent for misplaced trust. And to make matters worse, if you read that whole chapter, in the drunken hallucinations that some of the people were having, they were showing no interest in the things of God. And they weren't even open to it. So how can we praise the Lord for his works because his instructions are worthy? Well, in part, you follow after truth when you trust in the instructions of the Lord. You follow after truth when you believe that the precepts of God can be trusted, he can be counted on. Psalm 119 and verse 140 says, Thy word is pure, therefore your servant loves it. Psalm 119 and 160 says, The sum of your word is truth. Psalm 119 and verse 148 says, My eyes anticipate the night watches that I may meditate on your word. Jesus said, Sanctify them by your word, for your word is truth. So we're here on the subject of the truth of God's instructions that we know from the Bible. And if you've uh, listened to much preaching at all, you've heard the phrase, the Bible says from time to time. Uh, Billy Graham was one who was famous to use that repeatedly. The Bible says... Well, there's been criticism. You might be surprised by this. You might not. But there's been criticism in some circles in recent decades that 
the phrase the Bible says is too simplistic. Just not going to work in this current culture that we have to be more sophisticated. We have to give them more than that. It's not enough to say the Bible says because that's a circular argument. Well, I got news for you. The Bible says, and that's what I'm going to stick with because the Bible says. If someone want to see that as simplistic, that's fine. I can live with that, but the Bible still says. And one of the things about the Bible that is so important to understand is you have to believe what the Bible says to be saved. So the Bible is propositional truth. It's not picking and choosing whether or not we want to believe it. Or let me say it another way. How can we know that the Bible is trustworthy in the matter of salvation if the Bible's not trustworthy in other areas of life? You see, when we think we're smarter than God and we put ourselves in judgment over God's word, we might as well just throw the whole thing out. It truly comes down to a take it or leave it proposition if we believe that the Bible says. You express dependence on God when you trust the instructions of God. We cannot make progress in following the precepts unless we depend on God for what we need. You also take responsibility for yourself when you trust the instructions of God because you can't blame everybody else for your issues and your problems. You see that it's you and the Lord. You understand that we're not going to stand before the Lord in groups. It's going to be one by one, just the same way we got saved, one by one. And I'm thankful when we do that we can go in confidence because of the blood of Jesus. We can go with assurance. We don't have to go with trepidation. We go with a holy reverence. But we realize that we're accountable to God for our own lives. So the psalmist wanted to know God's precepts in order for us to study them. And God's precepts are contained in the Bible for us. There was an experiment with teenagers to demonstrate how they handle peer pressure. And what they did was they took groups of 10 adolescents and they brought them into a room and they instructed them to raise their hand when the teacher pointed to the longest line on three charts. Nine of the people had been told ahead of time to vote for the second longest line, to vote for the wrong line. But one person in the group had not been told. So the experiment began with nine teenagers voting for the wrong line, and then the tenth person would typically glance around, frown in confusion, and slip his hand up with the group because he lacked the courage to challenge the group. In 1 Kings 13, an unidentified man of God performed miraculous signs at the altar in Bethel. But then after this great victory, he took the word of another prophet to be truth, even though he knew it was contrary to what God had told him. And because of his disobedience, he was killed by a lion. Now, the story teaches us, both in the contemporary illustration as well as the biblical one, that God's word is superior to anyone else's word and therefore should be obeyed. When we're tempted to buckle under pressure, we've got to stand firm. And there are a lot of Christians that are buckling under pressure. They're buckling on key issues that are fundamental to humanity because they're concerned about what somebody else is going to think about them or they're concerned about getting canceled. They're concerned about the criticism that they're going to get. And it, it's time that we, we stand firm in what we believe in the precepts and we 
We praise God for his works because we believe his instructions are trustworthy and they inform how we live. And then third, praise the Lord for his works because he has sent redemption. I love the way verse 9 is phrased. It's very simple, but it's straightforward. He has sent redemption to his people. That's what God has done. Now, obviously, literally, the fulfillment of that is in Jesus. Uh, But he sent redemption purposefully, and Jesus came on that rescue mission. And another illustration uh, from the art world, in many ancient depictions in paintings and stained glass windows, you'll see the symbol for the church used uh, in terms of a wooden vessel with a sail. Now, that boat sometimes has parallels to the Sea of Galilee, the miracles of Jesus, the story is in the New Testament, but it has even greater uh, symbolism than that because signifying a vessel of salvation, the image resonates uh, in a way that helps us understand the principle that's being taught or the Im- or the symbol that's being presented. And there's a word that was used to describe the central portion of a sanctuary called the nave. Now, I know that's not a common word we mostly use. If you're older, you've probably heard somebody refer to the nave, but that's a word that was used. Now, why does that matter? Well, it matters because the Latin word for a ship is navis and boat is navicular. So it's a symbol of the church ultimately as a symbol of salvation, a symbol of rescue. And that's what redemption is, is it's rescue of people who are lost. And what God did was God sent Jesus as our lifeboat and the church represents the lifeboat pointing people to the ultimate rescuer who is Jesus. So to redeem means to buy out. It was used specifically in referring to the purchase of a slave's freedom. Before we're redeemed, our spiritual condition is as slaves of sin. Now, there are some things that money can't buy, but they say nowadays they're not many. And that might be true. But according to Michael Sandel, who wrote What Money Can't Buy, a person can buy a Rolex date just watch for $15,690. That's kind of mid-range. So you're not really at the top of the pile if you buy one of those. You're kind of mid-range. You can buy a high-end African safari for $1,500 a night per person. That would add up pretty quick. You can buy a 9,846-square-foot house and estate Get this, in Summersville, West Virginia, for $19.5 million. Or you could buy a custom Ford Raptor R pickup truck. A pickup truck for $147,995. It seems that almost everything is up for sale. But let me tell you one thing you You can't buy with money. You can't buy your redemption. You cannot buy freedom from the stranglehold of sin. Jesus' death on the cross was the high cost of delivering us from sin. And only Jesus was qualified to to pay that price because he's the son of God. 
So the natural response to such free but costly grace is hallelujah. It's a, it's a song of praise for our redemption. And we praise our loving God because he has come to set us free. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We're all in the same circumstance. But what Jesus has done is he has paid the price for our release from sin. And it's through his death, burial, and resurrection that our lives are redeemed. And when our faith is in him, we're redeemed by his blood. And we have no merit on our own. We can become slaves, but we can't become saints. But when we're redeemed, sinners are made saints. Listen to Ephesians 1 and verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. Now, what are some of the blessings of redemption? Forgiveness of sin. Imputed righteousness. Peace with God. Adoption into God's family. The indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. Purpose in this life. Hope for and the promise of the next. Freedom, holiness, connection, presence. All of these are the blessings of redemption. Now, churches are lifeboats and not cruise ships. Let me go a little further with this illustration. Cruise ship passengers more or less have a passive role. Important decisions are made by others. Things are done for you. There's trained professionals. But let me tell you, those ancient mariners, they were not passengers. They were the crew. We should not have a passive role in the church where we are spectators of a product to be consumed. But we are servants of the God who is worthy. Cruise ship passengers do their own thing. They participate in various forms of entertainment and activities, whatever is their preference. Some swim, some sleep, some dance. Ancient mariners had to learn to work together or they were literally sunk. Cruise ship passengers are there for the entertainment. Broadway-style shows, movies, activities. What are they designed for? To entertain Now, should we find great joy when we come together to worship? Absolutely. There ought to be happiness about us and a a pleasant spirit about us. But we're not here for entertainment. The entertainment mindset causes people to ask, what's in this for me? Well, I didn't like the show. I didn't like the performers. I didn't like the actors. I didn't like the activities. So I'm going to find me another church. That's a cruise ship mentality not a lifeboat. And then cruise ship passengers are generally very safe. Typically the biggest threat is going home, having gained some weight or maybe getting a little bit sick, come in contact with the wrong person. Ancient mariners were willing to face the terrifying conditions of the sea and they were unfazed. I ran across an article from November of 1929 entitled The Lifeboat. And it's actually from Scotland. And it was in the Journal of the Royal National Lifeboat Institution. Who knew there was such a thing? The article was outlining inaugural ceremonies of these stations getting motored lifeboats. Not just rowing, but they actually got motors on them. So here were a few of them. In Fowey, Cornwall, 
there's been a lifeboat stationed there since 1859. And the article said its boats have rescued 52 lives. This is in 1929. Weymouth Dorset, there's been a lifeboat stationed there since 1869. And its boats have rescued 38 lives as of 1929. Thurso in uh, Caithness there's been a lifeboat stationed there since 1860. And apparently they're either in a very dangerous area or they're better than the others because its boats have rescued 391 lives from shipwreck as of 1929. And then finally, Stornway in the island of Lewis, there's been a lifeboat stationed there since 1887 and its boats had rescued 12 lives. Now, churches are lifeboats and Jesus is the captain and we are the crew. And we could say and should be able to say of every church, if Someone was to look at and take an account of Cross Lanes Baptist Church since 1959. And we knew the collective total of how many people had come to know Jesus Christ as a direct result of this ministry. We could say Cross Lanes Baptist Church is a lifeboat station and this many people have been redeemed. See the connection? This is why we exist. To see people experience redemption from God. And we want to see as many as possible. So I say to you as I come toward a close this evening, his praise endures forever. It's without end. There, there's going to be praise around the throne of God for eternity. 1 Timothy 1 and verse 17 says, Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be glory and honor forever and ever. Amen. We want to be a people who find our peace and our purpose in the Lord and his works. And if we are, and we delight in him, and our devotion is to him, then we're going to have the freedom we need to live out our Christian lives as we should. Let's bow our heads together for a moment as we come to our close of the message and of our time together tonight. Father, forgive us for getting distracted and focusing on things that don't ultimately matter that aren't helpful for us or holy in your sight. Lord, we want to say to you, hallelujah, we praise your name now and always. May our praise of you be the true North Star of our lives, that all things in our lives would focus on you, that we would seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, Lord, and you'll add to us everything that we need otherwise. Thank you for your gracious love for us, for your compassion, for all the good things that you provide, all the ways that you work in our lives and in the world. Help us not to take those things for granted and to be ungrateful. Lord, we love you. We want to honor you with our lives. So I pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ. There's some that are struggling with trying to order things I know different seasons of life can be exceedingly busy and complicated, especially when kids are younger and life is, is more complex. I pray whatever our circumstances are, that we would look to you for our strength and our guidance and that we would honor you with all that we do. Um, and we would do that in Jesus' name. Bless us as a church that we would be a lifeboat, not a cruise ship. Help us uh, to 
do what matters most, realizing the rescue mission that Jesus has come on in order for us to be reconciled to you, to be redeemed of, uh, from our condition. Bless the remainder of this week. We look forward to coming back together. And God be glorified in our lives now and always. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.